psychedelic mind revealed why is it that uh, deep stages of meditation uh, psychosis um, religious um, fervor rapture or even extreme states of say in a vision quest uh, mental illness can sometimes go from madness to what seems like um, crazy wisdom like the Tibetans. Uh, I posit there is absolutely no difference between all these. Why? Because the idea of mind revealing, as well as our original question of is it the activation of the HT2A? Is it the exogenous compounds? I argue yes and no. It is the activation of the H2A, but it's not by anything exogenous. Arguably, it might not even be influenced. The compounds might influence us into activating this H2, but that's neither here nor there. So the question is, if they are like all mind-revealing, be it vision quests, fasting, religious experience, deep stages of meditation, exogenous compounds, as I said, we traveled the earth looking for these um, places to live, things to eat. We came across entheogenic plants or substances. And we tried them. I originally thought it gave us an empathy, an insight, uh, helped reduce our trauma. And I argue it did, but what really is the transformational experience is mind-revealing, absolutely. It's like Jung said, Faust, and two souls in one breast. We attach to the selfish idea of the soul. In reality, it's really the, uh, the uh, oneness or the equanimous or upeksha, upeka, uh, shakti. This idea of a divine aspect that we're all a part of. So as, again, Jung he posited that uh, we have this natural tendency to search for a cause and expect a natural effect. And I would posit that we can see that today in Friston's free energy principle, this idea that free energy is surprise. So the mind, as a predictive engine, attempts to reduce our surprise, the mind um, interacting with this nascent self, this embodied self, the self that is upakara, like Vasubandhu, that uh, it, uh, it is there because of the need for it, uh, but once the need no longer, uh, well, when there's no longer a need for it, you cast it aside, kind of like um, the Heart Sutra, right? Um, let me see if I can remember. Gate, gate, paragate, parasamgate, bodhisattva. So the idea of is uh, gate, away, gate, away, away from this attachment to self and this uh, belief that there is no way out of your situation or you're trapped inside of whatever the situation you happen to be in, right? Parigate, away to the other shore, right? This first jhana, gate, get away from your attachment to self. Gate, control your feelings, your perceptions, Paragate, and you're away, you're able to see equanimity, a glimpse, 
and parasamgate, away, away, far away, where you can reside in equanimity. So my proof for both uh, the theory and uh, a study is that I argue there is no difference between all of these experiences. If done with faith, shraddha, shraddha, right? Confidence, devotion, and commitment in the path you so choose to follow. So I think there is no difference if we could train people to have the incredible devotion to meditate or um, to practice in whatever way they may see fit. In fact, yesterday there was a question about, do I believe in a particular prophet? And I argue there's no need for us to believe in a particular prophet. I use the example of Buddhism because it tends to not upset anybody. It doesn't matter whether you existed or not. The idea is someone said, no, there must be a solution to this. I'm going to set myself away, contemplate, devote myself with compassion and confidence till I find some sort of solution, right? So this individual applied insight. So my own personal story that I'd never really put two and two together was something I've never forgotten. I was in uh, grade school. I think I've told you the story about standing up for the, um, for the young kid who was having a, um, some identity issues. But about the same time, we put on a play. <clears throat> Pardon me, I don't remember the play, but I've never forgotten the training. And I hate to admit that maybe drama is important to teach all kids, even kids that aren't interested, because they say a treatment for trauma nowadays um, is, you know, acting and, and all this jazz. But what's never left me was the teacher taught us diaphragmatic breathing, box breathing, or essentially pranayama. He taught us how to breathe deep so you could really talk and and now you know why I'm such a great talker. I think that was a big part of it. But again, as I've said recently, I now understand why I was so attracted to Buddhism. It had to do with it's the most practicable solution for trauma. So here I attach to this idea of breathing and breathing deep, diaphragmatic breathing. And I have no doubt that being this horribly traumatized youth in so many ways, too. Um, the breathing helped bring about a certain amount of uh, emotional and somatic regulation. Because, again, suffer from emotional dysregulation. Something fierce. So that, in combination with then, uh, not but a few years later, having come to study Buddhism... I found myself uh, quite enamored with the philosophy. And I've said this before. I found a book by Christmas Humphreys about Buddhism. And I found it very interesting. Some of the philosophies made absolute sense. So fast forward a little further. I've been studying this for a long time. absolutely considered myself a Buddhist at this point, being about 18, 19, something like that. I'm guessing, but had to have been about that. Because I was working for uh, a store in a mall that you would have been required to be 18 to work in. I was sitting on a break or a lunch break, whatever it happened to be, in the cafeteria of this mall. Uh, hundreds of people hanging out around me. You can imagine the cacophony of sound. I mean, mm, the, uh, the allegory to uh, what we're talking about here, about managing uh, 
the monkey mind, or right? But I sat there, having recently got uh, a new translation of the Bartholth the Duel. I keep talking about this, uh, by Robert Thurman, Robert F. Thurman. <clears throat> what I liked about it is they didn't just translate the rites, the rituals. They translate a lot of the instructions, right? So here I was getting this idea that these demonic forces in the, the bardos were actually manifestations of the mind, or more importantly, that these bardos aren't strictly for the between states of life and death. These bardo states, these between states, are constant, like an alpha, beta, theta idea. So here I sit in the cafeteria, and I applied some critical reasoning. Didn't realize that. But I, I pondered some thought experiments. Right? So what is the nature of existence and self? So I sat looking at everybody, and there's a theory that, well, I, if, if I'm the center of the universe, then is everyone but uh, an actor upon the stage, like Shakespeare said, but literally in a sense that their meaning or existence is wholly derived from me. So as I said before, if I were to leave the cafeteria, do they just cease to exist? That made no sense at all. The same idea that, uh, you know, we were like an alien in a fishbowl. What came to me, and I didn't realize this until, again, being dyslexic in the last year or two, I've really only now begun to, of course, deal with my trauma, but more importantly, learn how to read and write, and even more importantly, learn how to apply insight to what you read and write. So I had this experience some 30 years ago, but I never internalized it. I've never um, learned from the lesson. Really, I had, but I had not cognized it, I guess you would say. I, I had had some sort of healing, kind of like learning that deep diaphragmatic breathing is very beneficial in so many ways. So I'd come to a conclusion sitting there in the cafeteria that had been incredibly helpful, but I didn't realize until recently exactly what it was. So the conclusion I had come to, sitting around, looking at everyone sitting, carrying on their own lives, very complicated, even some people very passionately carrying on with their lives. What I had realized is I wasn't the center of the universe, right? It was absolutely outside of the realm of possibility that I am as special as I tend to think, like Faust's two souls in one breast. It's not possible that all these other people are less important than myself. It was this early discovery, and I think in combination with my severe trauma, because I'm very, very toned down, heavily activated in some ways, but the example I give, I always wonder, because here in Canada, we had these special little minutes, one of these little interstitials for television was uh, a David Suzuki thing. He uh, used to have a TV show called The Nature of Things. And he had a little piece where he talked about yawning, right? That it's contagious. It's amazingly weird how you can just see even a person's eyes and it will cause you uh, to yawn. 
So this was incredibly confusing to me because from a very young age, I discovered that that didn't work on me. I didn't have to, you know, uh, necessarily work hard to prevent somebody else's yawn from causing me to yawn. In fact, again, applying insight, now I see what was really going on. So I could be uh, susceptible to, um, I don't know, what would you call that, a subconscious parasympathetic reaction? I don't know. Because a yawn is supposed to be what? You're getting too much oxygen to your brain or what? Right? And it's possible, having at this point been practicing pranayama, that at any point my brain could have had too much of one gas or another. <laughs> Pardon my pun. Unintended otherwise. But here I was. I could watch that video, right? And of course it was filmed in such a way to uh, obviously influence the audience. And I see it all the time. I see people being susceptible to this. But I was not unless I was tired or severely emotionally dysregulated or distracted. I guess that would be almost identical. Then I was more likely to be susceptible. But even then, only mildly so. It was like a meh, like a you know, not really trying to yawn. The body's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, there's this reaction, let me get at it. And what I didn't understand is, is there something to do with my traumatic brain injury when I was really young? Or I think it's just plain and simple, just how the brain works. Right, when you early on get so severely traumatized, you're so detached from reality. You're not present. What each and every one of these systems is asking us to do. Because one, you need to be present to actually exist. Two, as Jung said, we tend to be so, so trapped in the past or worrying about the future and we're never here to ply our trade, right? Pay attention with our senses, our perception and our thinking mind and then learn from our experience, right? So arguably Friston's theory of free energy only has to do when we truly are being present and or the idea if we are attaching to the past or the present, then almost anything that happens would then be surprise, free energy, right? Because the mind is either too distracted or just, and that's the other idea with um, reason. It is incredibly impinged by stress. So if you're traumatized, stressed, distracted, your critical reasoning or your critical thinking skills go out the window. So that's why I argue all this boils down to the experience, and that's why they tend to call it ego death, but it's not so much that. It's almost like a window, like that third jhana. A window into the possibility that you may not be, you know, the cat's ass, as they say. You might not be uh, the center of the universe or the hinge pin of, uh, of existence. Or, like, I, I, I don't know if it's correct. I just stole it and twisted it up for my own use, au bas du ciel, right? So you're at the base of the sky, meaning, you know, I am the alpha and the omega, pardon the pun again. But uh, yeah, so that, long story short, is my philosophy. So how do we prove this? So my theory was originally we just didn't have the language, right? And I still believe that. But how do we prove that these experiences are almost wholly one of a glimpse of equanimity. Well, 
let's break the groups up. Some of them, like really where I got this idea, is they tested uh, trauma in the same sort of way. Now, keep in mind, we're screwing the results because I think it'll be similar with psychedelics. Uh, there'll be a big chunk uh, that will see benefit in a placebo sort of way because just by searching out treatment, uh, you're looking for, uh, or there's some healing benefit to searching out treatment. So what I posit here, follow me on this, is we can have one group where we explain our theory here, right? That the nature of self, a glimpse of equanimity, um, understanding the idea of two souls in one breast, uh, this idea, uh, also probably more importantly, our original idea that, um, you know, archaic man or primitive man, as Jung said, um, tends to want an answer for cause and effect. And uh, I posit, uh, well, Jung says that, you know, we just expect to come across an answer at some point. Well, I use the modern example of bacteria and disease, right? None of us can see it uh, for the most part. Even if we're shown on a television screen, we really don't really see it. I posit oh, that the real benefit to both belief, trust, overcoming doubt, and the real benefit to uh, not, not having uh, this need for absolutes. So not needing the answer. Having faith. Right? In the face of doubt. Understanding not particularly that there's a system or uh, something special that's controlling or guiding. But the idea is faith, but not the faith like we've talked. It's just a devotion, a commitment, and a confidence. Right? So it's this loss of hope like Frankel. Right? Or even like Camus, that embracing the absurd is all we need to do. It's like Friston's free energy. It's not a surprise if you embrace it. It's unexpected, sure, but not a surprise. And it goes back to trauma, right? I have to thank someone in particular. Uh, because if I hadn't gone back to look at uh, a recent study on trauma, then I wouldn't have seen a whole bunch of really important works. Of course, I'd been guided by Gabor Mate and his book on Hungry Ghosts, which talked about, uh, what did he call it, developmental trauma or childhood trauma, and what it leads to. But I missed uh, Van der Kolt's, um, Bessel, Dr. Vendel, Brett, Dr. Bessel, Vander Colts <coughs> and his book uh, The Body Keeps the Score is foundational to how we see trauma nowadays because even here in Canada they haven't even um, classified complex trauma or developmental trauma or whatever you want to call it something that is different from PTSD and that's what I argue right because we don't see that just like any injury, in fact, I call it psychological SIRS, so systematic inflammatory response system, is actually uh, activated by a psychological trauma, right? Because look at trauma, right? The trauma room of a hospital. We are so fixated on this idea of an injury physical versus mental. Think about this, right? There's the first 
jhana. Yes, manage somatic, but the next step up is to understand the importance of feeling and perception. Right? The vedana. So the first step, of course, is to get the body in order because most important, it's your vihara, your temple, right? Then you manage the inside so then you can actually perceive what's going on, right? The third jhana is once you've managed the physical, managed your psychological, and you're able to perceive the present without any major bias, hopefully, in my case, kind of a backwards reaction, whereas where I learned uh, this possibility of equanimity early on, and I didn't actually start to manage my trauma until later. But these experiences are still there for uh, insight, or, or for what do they call it, um, reprocessing and, and uh, whatever they call it. Right? So I posit that this can be proved in many ways. We can even look at vision quests. And, but I think we don't even have to do the study because what I thought at first um, was I could go back and look at the studies and see, like I've said before, there's, there's uh, cultural specifics. You can get an idea of how religious a particular culture is and get an idea of um, how religious the person is by how they explain it. But as I have said recently, I've come to a different conclusion is that in that we've already proven this idea that uh, there is no difference between uh, psychedelic mind-revealing practice, right? We've just categorized them differently. And, and on my walk, I was thinking it makes sense for two reasons. One, you don't want people to abuse these exogenous compounds because, again, a certain amount of maturity comes uh, from trying to develop these experiences naturally and so I manage. Uh, actually, I, I equated it to the will to power applied to, like, think of these small little groups. If you look at some of these groups, even Buddhist groups as an example, you see a, a small number of um, admins wielding incredible power. But then what you see is some of the most excellent leaders are the ones that had real consequences to their choices, life and death. That's when you start to see where it makes serious dichotomy, but much more of this duality. So yes, you'll still see people who will abuse the power, right? Absolute power corrupts. But what you'll see more of when it's real stakes involved is you'll see people humbled by this experience, right? So I posit this to be the exact same thing, right? So this idea of a window into equanimity, it can be achieved by devoted practice. It can be achieved by taking a compound. Now the worry is you want people to work at this. It's the same idea, right? Someone who is given power without earning it, you can see get much more twisted by it than someone who has worked hard to get there. So I posit they kept this practice because, again, not every uh, culture had an entheogen, an exogenous entheogen. A lot of these cultures 
we're likely trying develop, to develop these vision quests, fasting, um, pranayama, yoga, uh, qigong, these ideas to right, restrain the somatic experience, right, bring uh, the, the thoughts and feelings and perceptions to bear, and then to allow one to experience this glimpse into equanimity, which is, like I said, I think the true healing. So I posit these people experience this without the proper language or understanding, and that's why they hid these entheogens away from the greater public. Because when you give someone without experience these psychedelics, they have a really weird experience. Of course, they don't understand it, so they might you know, like Jung said, default back to these archetypes of God or metaphysical, uh, you know, explanations. And so I say that my early experience into the nature of self and all these ideas, long before I had experienced, like, serious entheogenic um, chemicals, I mean, I'd, I'd been exposed to a little bit of alcohol, a little bit of um, hashish, which is a little more introspective than, than cannabis itself. Um, I can't quite remember. There wasn't a lot. I mean, experimented with a few others like nutmeg and uh, LSA um, right early on. Yeah, I mean, some LSD and psilocin, psilocybin. Um, but I don't know why. I uh, Yeah, I didn't. I might have been that numbness. Um, I took uh, quantities, but I didn't have um, entheogenic experiences until I got older and started to really understand this. And I'm not saying terribly old. Um, I, I give that example in in the mall as, uh, I mean, obviously I'd been looking into the nature of self for a while. But, um, yeah, well, to wrap this up, uh, I argue um, that it's that glimpse into the uh, equanimity, the possibility. That's what we're all hunting for. And I think it's kind of proven by the fact that um, I did a ton, a ton of entheogenic um, journeys uh, after having an understanding in the nature of self. And I had no, arguably no uh, negative experiences. In fact, over the years, I saw that I had a certain level of uh, control uh, over the uh, the compounds or the experience uh, that others didn't. And, and I argue that's this idea. So I would say that we can allow some people support after, like they did with the trauma, explaining people, giving them the language to explain their healing and their experience, right? But we can also train people on this idea of what the ego death is. And I think we'll see that that's exactly what people will experience. Once we give people the language that they need to explain that this was just as simple as, wow, yeah, you're right. You know, at first, I was like, wow, what is this? Like, you know, like I'm not thinking about me and being the center of this weird experience, you know. They don't cognize it. They don't really think about it. But if you give them the understanding to know that, oh, see, what's transformative for us is because we are so trapped by our, our uh, is it the limbic system or just our fear or, or caveman experience idea, we're so trapped by our somatic experience um, that we can't, um, you know, really truly experience uh, 
you know, ourselves and our experience uh, present. And even if we can manage our physical physical experience, right? If we're not completely, like the example I think Young uses is when you have a toothache, it's all you can think about is your tooth. And he's not wrong. It's one of the worst pain. Like as someone who has a disease that causes chronic pain, and it's transitory pain too, like actually something that was weird. Um, I had a splash of coffee. The wife was pouring tea. No, it was just my mint tea. She was pouring a mug of uh, mint tea for me. And one tiny little splash of tea came out. It wasn't even that hot. Um, hit my uh, thumb, and it hurt. Like it felt like a burn. But see, I understand now. It's uh, it's just a symptom of of this. Uh, I can't remember what they call it, but this disconnect from the somatic experience. So that's why I use the two weight weights when I walk. It's an attempt to, um, you know, the somatic experience. You know, even the chewing the gum. But I find that a little distracting because I chew it so intensely. Uh, I pull the flavor out of it so quick. I'd love to get some of that fancy gum, the natural uh, mastic gum. But uh, yeah, yeah, so long story short, I argue um, we kind of already see the proof, uh, young and all the science. Um, I actually think we can see um, that there's maybe an argument to be made that all of this uh, dance that we're talking about uh, suffering, pain, dissatisfaction, healing, trauma. They're all part of the same symptom, same disease cause. After the first jhana, you manage your physical experience, well, then you still have to manage your yourself, your perceptions, your preferencing. You will attach to this, the silliest things believe in the silliest things it's incredible that's our job as i've said before sati sampajana to be mindful to remember uh, to bring clear comprehension to all of life's activities so that's how i think we prove it and that's how we heal people we just explain that no matter what it is that you do if you do it with devotion and commitment and confidence and you truly care and understand that you're unable to perceive everything. And you may never have an answer to everything. That great doubt is what opens up our hearts or our minds, whatever you want to call it, to the possibility that we may not be the center of the universe. We may be operating on false or failed assumptions. And the real difference is embracing that, right? Not seeing this experience, right? Because I think that's where the mistake comes. We go through these experiences either by taking a substance or going through hardship or uh, devoting oneself to a practice of contemplation or... Um, Bhakti, I'm trying to, well, I guess devotion, right? Worship, uh, whatever. It, it's, not, it's not the experience itself. That's the problem. That is the actual problem. This experience of equanimity or ego death or the not-self, 
the reason why people tend to the metaphysical and even maybe tend to deny what it is, certainly tend to deny this innate fact of, in Buddhism, the Tsgatagarbha, or in Christianity, this, this ability to empty oneself and to fill oneself with grace, kenosis. This communion, upeksha, equanimity, koinonia, in Greek, a communion between the divine and oneself and everyone else. If this is understood to be our natural resting state, we don't see it as a weird, unnatural experience. Right? Like the crazy wisdom, those that embrace the selfless aspects look mad. So, of course when we're trying to experience something, well, that's the first thing we do, right? We, we experience something out of the norm, out of the ordinary, and we're like, whoa, whoa, what is that? And I argue the explanations of metaphysical or ritual is just the mind trying to protect itself, just like trauma, right? Trauma is, or damaging trauma, is actually a natural healing process inappropriately applied, Right? If you think of um, histamine reaction in the allergic, just an overreaction of a natural system. Same as the TNF factor. Like we're playing with some of these inflammatory diseases. If you think about tumor necrosis factor, it's a natural process. Same as I've mentioned, uh, taking DAO to uh, downregulate histamine. Right. So all natural processes, it's whether we embrace them as natural. Is the experience natural? We try to blame it on exogenous chemicals. That's why doctors treat these experiences identical, because they are identical. Psychosis, meditative experience, uh, exogenous chemicals. It is the same experience, but they don't want to admit the reality behind it. So they, they call them different experience, label them different, just like in Zen, the problem is in the labeling and the attachment. If we were to stop and go, whoa, there is something going on here, but I don't think science has the ability to have that third choice. It's not this, it's not that. Maybe it's something we can't perceive. That, the chetascoti, right? It's not this, it's not that. It might be both. It might be neither. It might be none of the above. It's that ladder. In reality, that's the answer here. I don't think we'll have the answer. I just think we're getting closer to the answer. It's not a magical experience. It's not simply a biological experience. It's a combination of both. In fact, I'm glad I mentioned this because it reminds me of what I was thinking about in the shower. So I used to think it was placebo. It's not. It's not placebo. Placebo is what we call this natural tendency. We have this great potential, this ability beyond our perception. I used to think, oh, we're awesome. No, it's, it's exactly what Nietzsche said. Man would be God if not for our baser desires, our gut. Right? We have so much doubt. I keep going back to this. I don't even know if she's a philosopher, but it's just a quote. That doubt has killed more dreams than failure ever could. Right? 
So it's this confidence in what we can achieve. I mean, look at my disease. It's auto-inflammatory disease. And uh, they regularly uh, give people suffering from my disease a, a biologic that costs near half a million dollars a year up here. And after one year, only 20% are still on it. Why? Because it doesn't actually work. If you were to give them a sugar pill and tell them with whole confidence, just like that study I mentioned, that ritual works because, well, people just believe. If you tell people that, hey, this sugar pill is going to work 55 to 58% of the time, it actually works. But that's where I come in. I'm a weirdo. I can't get hypnotized. You can yawn. It doesn't make me yawn. And placebo doesn't work for me. So for a long time, I thought the different drugs that my doctor put me on when we were trying to uh, treat this auto-inflammatory and complex PTSD or just complex trauma, he tried giving me these different pills, you know, Paxil and uh, Wellbutrin. The problem is, arguably, I... I wasn't suffering from depression in the same sort of way that other people are. And complex trauma, this, the studies show that um, SSRIs uh, don't tend to really work. But I was labeled as medication-averse or something like that. Why? Because unlike others, they didn't work at least for six weeks or a couple months, right? So even if you were complex trauma... And SSRIs, or uh, serotonin uh, reuptake inhibitors, selective serotonin, that's the second S, don't really work. The beauty, and I ran into this myself, actually, with uh, Wellbutrin. Now, Wellbutrin's a little bit scary because technically, uh, I'd argue, it's also an amphetamine. But I knew somebody who was, once again, commonly misdiagnosed with BPD. Uh, what is that? No, what is it called? No, no, that's bipolar. Um, personality disorder. What do they call that? Anyways, it doesn't matter. Um, commonly misdiagnosed as a, it's like a, a personality disorder. It's not a major thing. In fact, it might not even be a thing because remember, the, the DSM-5 uh, uh, isn't even supported wholly by the, uh, by the medical community. But it was pretty obvious he was suffering from complex trauma. And uh, his doctor put him on Wellbutrin, and I warned him because I went on it. And um, because I don't suffer from the placebo like most, Wellbutrin didn't really work for me. So what they usually tell, sorry, I got a little derailed there. So what they usually say is, um, you know, you got to give it six weeks to work. It actually only takes a week or two, but they tell them that because they're hoping that the placebo will actually give them a bit of a kick. And the medication is just used to cut the edge off so people can, you know, start to put in some of these practices. Like, for example, uh, when I'm having a flare, you wouldn't believe the weird cravings I'll have for junk food. And it's just years since I've ate that terrible stuff, you know. But I'll get the weirdest cravings. Um, same as the weirdest thoughts, like when I was on antibiotics a few weeks ago. You just get the craziest thoughts. I mean, I've been in this healing journey for years, and yet, whew, just terrible, terrible thoughts. It's all in what you attach to and believe. So, anyways, I digress.